Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. 
He said to them, But now you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfilment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Thanks, Sarah. Welcome, everyone. Good evening. Boy, it feels like evening at the moment, doesn't it? It's a bit darker outside. My name is Bernie. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me just add my welcome to that of Joe's. Uh, how about we pray together, and then we're going to get stuck into God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we give you great praise today that you do speak to us, and Father, you have a great truth uh, and a great, uh, a great son whom we get to remember. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, as we hear it, uh, Lord, you give us ears to be able to hear, hearts that are warm uh, and open, and Father, it might grip us afresh. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how you go about remembering things. You know, if you've got some things that uh, you'd like to remember, uh, some important things, what kind of things do you do? In yesteryear, they used to kind of like have a little piece of string that they tie around their finger. Uh, so you remember, I use a phone. Someone came up with a great idea. This is their idea, okay? What they do is they take something, right, and move it out of the place where it normally is supposed to be. So, for example, you know, you could take a ring, right, and then you put it on your other hand or on your other finger, and, and every time you feel that ring that's supposed to be on the other hand, you go, oh, that's something I've got to do. Or what you do is you get a clothes basket, you put it right in the middle of your living room, and every time you trip over it, you go, oh, that's right. I was supposed to do something with that right now. And then after that, you put that clothes basket back away. It, that, that kind of works, except for some people who don't really know where things are supposed to go. And so therefore, when they walk around and feel things, they go, oh, it's normal, and they kind of dismiss it. Well, I suspect that if you have something that is really important for you to remember, you would have some contingency plans. Uh, it wouldn't just be a basket. It wouldn't just be a phone ringing. There'll be someone giving you a call. There'll be someone, something in your calendar. There'll be some alarms going off to make sure that you remember. Well, God has given us something very important for us to remember. And he's even given us the means for us to remember. He wants us to remember his body given for us. His blood given for us. Our chapter begins with an ominous feel. You're going to need your, your Bible open with, uh, with you, so whether it's a leaflet, there's, a, there's an outline ready for you as well to follow along. There's some uh, additional verses, so you're going to need that. But our chapter here begins with a really dark and foreboding feel as we're taken into the wicked dealings of powerful people, a traitor, and an evil spirit. Now, I don't think you can get a darker group of characters together than that. Ironically, this was supposed to be a time of celebration of God's mighty rescue of his people at the beginnings of these very same people, for it was the Passover season. But what do we hear instead? Verse 2, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. They couldn't just kill Jesus in public because the public 
well, they might get them in trouble. Enter into the scene. A character who's been hired is biding his time ever since chapter 4 of this gospel. And that is Satan. Back then in chapter 4, Satan failed to tempt Jesus to bow down to him. Well, he's picked his next target. And he's got a choice one. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples who've been closest to Jesus. This time, Satan is successful. And now Judas is walking to the beat of Satan's drum. A beat that Judas was already playing himself. So into the midst of the Jewish authorities walks the opportunity that they have been looking for. Verse 4, Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Judas will be able to deliver over to them Jesus without the interference of a crowd and make a pretty penny at the same time. Can you feel the immense threat that is looming over Jesus. Surely there will be no way of escaping this trap, so they think. Jesus wouldn't suspect a thing, especially from such a close follower, someone he trusted. They think they know something that Jesus doesn't. They would be mistaken. Imagine if someone tried to ambush, ambush someone, only to discover that above him was a drone that's just been tracking and watching their every move, and just behind the bushes is a huge security envoy ready to pounce on him instead. It's a bit like that. There are still those today who wish to get rid of Jesus and Christianity and the truth of the gospel. The Easter message that we're going to get to hear in a couple of weeks' time, that is still offensive to people. You mention your belief in Jesus in public and you can expect anywhere from a cold shoulder to outright verbal opposition. The one that takes me by surprise sometimes is when people say something to challenge what I believe, but they smile whilst they do it. Have you ever seen that? They smile and they go, I can't believe you think that. I can't believe you think that, that, that Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm a, I'm a naturally smiley guy, right? But I don't even know what to do with my own face. But I'm trying to give a defense of the gospel to those who would or counter it. I think the thing that encourages me through it, and it should be an encouragement to us, is how Jesus responds to his far more serious threat here. And we're going to get to see that as we go along. Now, before moving on in our passage, it's, it's really important to know the background of the Passover, because it's key to the meaning behind this meal that Jesus is about to eat with his disciples. It points back to the time when the Pharaoh were, in, uh, when the Israelites, sorry, were enslaved in Egypt under a cruel and unrelenting king, that is a Pharaoh, a ruler who ordered, if you remember, the killing of all Israelite firstborn sons simply because there were too many of their kind and he saw a threat to his own rule. And God, remembering his promises and covenant with his people, sent Moses to rescue them and to bring them back to the land that he promised them so that they could worship him freely. Despite many extraordinary and powerful displays of God's power to persuade the Pharaoh to release his people, he still refused. 
I wonder whether you remember the plagues. The plagues of blood and frogs and gnats and flies and livestock and boils and hail and locusts and darkness. Boy, I think I would have given in about like, you know, number six. But yet Pharaoh didn't relent. The last of God's powerful acts was to strike down every firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. And he warned the Pharaoh, and yet he still didn't relent. To spare his own people, God instructed each household to take a lamb, to kill it, and then take its blood and put it onto the door frames of their house. And this is what will happen. Exodus 12, it's in your leaflets. Exodus 12, 23 says, When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. That's where the word Passover comes from. Symbolically, it's a lamb uh, that takes the place of each household's firstborn such that the destroyer would spare that house. A remarkable yet frightening event which will be formative for Israel's life. As a result of God's judgment on Egypt, the Israelites were set free and from that time on, Israel was to remember this event. And so every year they were to sacrifice an animal and eat it with unleavened bread. And for future generations, the Israelites were to remember God's loving rescue. It was a rescue not just from captivity, but a rescue into a promised land. The same land that Jesus and his followers are in right now, reclining and about to celebrate the Passover. Jesus is about to show that the Exodus was pointing forwards to his ultimate rescue. In 2015, an Aussie named Peter Carey was attending a first aid course when out of the blue, he had a heart attack. Oh, the irony, having a heart attack in the middle of a first aid course. There he was, of all things, pretending to be a snake bite victim on the floor when he started to show signs of going into cardiac arrest. They thought that he was just getting into character, possibly a little bit confused as to what a snake bite symptom looks like, but boy, he was doing a great job on the floor right there. But after a while, they finally worked out what was happening, and the first aid trainers kicked to action. There was CPR, there was triple zero call, and some really gutsy students with a defibrillator. They just learned how to use it. While Peter Carey re recovered, thankfully, and he now works, get this, he now works to promote CPR training and sales of defibrillators. That's what he does. And so every time Peter sold a defibrillator, he reminded himself of his own rescue. It's kind of like what, what Israel is doing. Every time they celebrated the Passover, they were reminding themselves of their nation's rescue. So coming back to Luke chapter 22, verse 7, it says, came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And like many other Israelites who would have been doing the same thing, Jesus begins the preparations for celebrating the Passover. He's already made some prior arrangements, so he sends Peter and John to go ahead and meet up with an owner of the house. 
They find the man as Jesus described with a large upper room all furnished and ready for them. The table is set. The hour has come. And Jesus and his apostles recline at the table. Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You see, Jesus had already foretold of his suffering earlier in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Back then he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus already knew that he was going to suffer and die. The trap of his suffering is already set. The time of his suffering is close. And he's really keen to have the Passover meal with his disciples. But unlike most last meals of people facing death, Jesus' desire is linked to hope and not hopelessness. Not only does the Passover serve to point Israel back to the Passover at the Exodus, but Jesus is now pointing pointing his people forward with it. Verse 16, it says, For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. See, it turns out that the promised land of Canaan into which the Israelites were brought after being rescued, that's where they are at the moment, it was only a shadow of the reality that is God's kingdom. And Jesus is eager to eat this Passover meal with them precisely because he wanted his disciples to look forward, to long for that reality of God's kingdom. He will not eat this meal again or drink this wine again until he gets to do it in his kingdom where his disciples get to join him. One of the places uh, I I love to bring our visitors, uh, whether it's from overseas or from interstates, one of the places I love to bring them in South Australia is Handoff. Uh, And of course, when you go to Handoff, the place where you go to eat uh, has got to be Handoff Inn. So a tip for those people, I wish people told me this before, so I'm going to give you this tip. You've never been to Handoff Inn before. Uh, Here's a tip. You know when they say that it's a platter for two? Yeah, what they mean is two very large Bavarians. Very large, hungry Bavarians too. That platter for two, I kid you not, is able to feed about four normal people. I wish they kind of told me that, you know, before I ordered that, just for, you know, Jenny and I. It was a very big day that day. Now imagine if I said to you, now that you've been to Handorf and, eat, and eat, eaten its bratwursts, there's no point going to Bavaria anymore. You know, I had to look up where Bavaria was. It's, it's in Germany. Yeah, everybody knew that. Mm. Imagine that if I said to you, you've, got, you've been to Handorf? You've had breakfasts? No point going to Bavaria anymore. I think at that point, all our German friends would gather around and slap me with a pretzel. <laughs> that's, that's rubbish. You think Handorf is Bavarian? No, 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 no. It's just a taste. Just a taste, a little shadow, a little glimpse into what Germany might look like or Bavaria might look like. 
You want to, you've got to be there to see the real thing. Handorf is only a glimpse into the real thing. The promised land, <clears throat> the land of Canaan, where the disciples are situated at the moment, is only a blurry glimpse into the real thing that is the kingdom of God. That is, that is what Jesus wanted them to, to go towards, to think towards. So the liturgy that we use for the Lord's Supper that we're going to share a bit later on points us to this future. We do this deliberately. It says, with this bread and this cup, we show forth Christ's death until he comes in glory. This hope of Jesus' return with his kingdom features so much in Scripture. It drives our mission and our care for one another. But it's there in order to point us forward as well as look back. I want to encourage you to include it in your prayer schedule. Like if you've not done this yet, in your daily prayers and your Bible readings, for the next two weeks, if you've not done so already, for the next two weeks, why don't you pray kingdom prayer, a kingdom prayer during your prayer time? Every day for the next two weeks, pray for God's kingdom to come. Pray for a longing to grip you, to long for that kingdom, to see forward. Spend that time just remembering what that glorious time is going to be with Jesus in his kingdom, ruling perfectly and greatly. I wonder how much impact it will make to you. I wonder what impact it will make to your day. What impact it will make for your weeks. I'd be really interested to hear. Come and tell me next week. There is certainly nothing that escapes the attention of Jesus. He already knows about a rejection by the Jewish leaders. He knows he will be killed. He, he foretold it. And he knows something that no one else has really quite comprehended, that he will be raised to life on the third day, very much alive to rule his kingdom. But does he know who is going to betray him? I bet that's what they're asking at the moment. Do they, does he really know who's going to stab him in the back? Now comes a key moment in this section of the gospel. If you read these verses... There's a real symmetry to our passage today. The topic of human failure and opposition and Satan bookends the passage, start, end. And the theme of God's kingdom forms the next layer. And in the middle, in central focus, are these words in verses 19 and 20. It says this, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It is for this purpose that, surrounded by those who want to kill him, Jesus persists. It is for this purpose that he chooses to walk into suffering and death. It is for this purpose that his path to his kingdom must pass through this point. He is about to give his body for you. He is about to give his blood for you. Jesus dies for you. And with just two verses... 
Jesus brings to fulfillment all that the Passover foreshadowed. The lamb that was sacrificed such that God's judgment would pass over each family, that was pointing to Jesus. In John's Gospel, it says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Today, God passes over every person who believes in Jesus because his blood was shed for us. God sees his son's blood around our doorway and he passes over. He spares us. I think for those of us who are new to Christianity, it may, be, it may not be very obvious why we need a rescue at all. Uh, we might not feel that we've offended anyone, let alone God himself. But the biggest reason for God's judgment is due to people's sin against God. And what sin? It is not ice cream. Okay, It's not eating ice cream. That's not what sin is about. Sin is about a rejection of God. It is about rebelling against him. It's about turning our back against him. It's about ignoring him. That's what sin means. The Pharaoh sinned against God by rejecting his lordship and command. The Israelites sinned against God by ignoring him and turning to false gods eventually. We sin against God today by that same rejection or by ignoring him. And the punishment for that is death. An eternal judgment. Friends, Jesus could have he could have said very different things when he was reclined at the table. He could have looked at the bread and he could have looked at the wine and instead he could have said this is your body and this is your blood shed for your own sins. Thanks be to God that that's not the case. Thanks be to God that he says, that is my body and my blood poured out for you and for many. Where the Israelites were rescued from slavery in Egypt through Jesus people are rescued from slavery to sin and death if we believe in Jesus. It is a reason why our liturgy for the Lord's Supper begins with confession. For we have no right, no right to partake of this save for the death of Jesus. So we admit our sins before God and that we cannot escape the destroyer unless Jesus takes on the judgment for us. From Jesus' time onwards, the Passover that will be celebrated for future generations will be that of God sparing his judgment on people who trust in Jesus and his blood spilt for us. In the words of Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 11 in your leaflets, it says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Just as the Israelites with the Passover look back at God's rescue and the promised land to come, 
Christians today look back at God's rescue in Jesus and the promised kingdom to come. In September 2019 in Sweden, there was a mother of six named Emma Scholz. And she woke up to the sound of fire downstairs in her villa. She rushed down where two of her boys were taking shelter and rushed those two boys to the front door, opened the front door, pushed them outside. But at that point, she heard an amazing boom. Because as she opened that front door, oxygen came in, supercharged the fire, and there was an explosion. She threw herself like a shield over the boys so that they would be spared, but in doing so, took on the full force of the explosion. I'll spare you the details of what her back looked like. But still her job wasn't done. She went back into the burning home climbed the burning uh, stairs up to the second level in order to, to, uh, to rescue the remaining of her children out a window. She suffered burns to 93% of her body. There was this uh, caption where a few months later, after some recovery, and she did make a remarkable recovery, but after a few months after that event, one of the heartbreaking things was watching one of her daughters not recognize her. She was afraid to go see mum. But her children will never forget how their mum shielded them from certain death. They had their lives because she put her life between them and the fire. Jesus took on the full force of God's explosive judgment so that we would be spared. And we get the immense privilege of marking that each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Not only does Jesus want us to remember his sacrifice for us, he begins a new covenant with those who believe in him with promises made by God and expectations for followers to obey. I haven't got time to just explore what this new covenant means. It's a, it's a sermon in itself. But it's all about the fact that God will put his law in our hearts. He will give us his spirit such that we will be able to be moved to follow his decrees and his law and to love him with our whole heart and our souls and our minds. Now there are certainly some misunderstandings that can surface when it comes to celebrating the Lord's Supper. Sometimes the world can't discern between uh, the difference between Roman Catholics and Protestant churches. I mean, after all, we have churches, we kind of speak the same language, it feels like, and we look like we do the same things. I mean, don't we both celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, yes, but there is such a big difference in meaning, such that there's a huge difference to how one is saved in the end. You see, when it says, when Jesus says in verse 19, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me, Roman Catholics understand that to mean that the bread actually becomes the flesh of Jesus. It might look, feel, and taste like unleavened bread, but in essence, it has become the flesh of Jesus. They believe that they are eating Jesus, quite literally. Ordinary bread 
becoming the flesh of Jesus when the priest presides over it. That's what they teach. Protestant churches, of which we are one, can't see how God's word supports such an understanding. When Jesus says, this is my body, he is speaking metaphorically, not literally. That is, this broken bread represents his body. I made a little prop. I did use it for, a, for, a, for an old ages talk in the morning once. And during that, during that old ages talk, I said, look, this is Jesus. Jesus is a magnificent shield. Because Jesus is able to shield us and protect us from, well, judgment. Now, not surprisingly, no one came up to me later on and said, I'd like to meet Jesus. Because that's not him. This represents Jesus. This represents what he is doing, who he is to us. And only one little aspect of it. When Jesus held the bread in his hands and said, this is my body, he means it represents his body. You see, according to Roman Catholics' understanding, they would then be breaking or sacrificing the body of Christ each time they celebrate the Lord's Supper. In their catechism, it says that Christ continues to offer himself in an unbloody manner on the altar through the ministry of his priests. Taking the Lord's Supper then is essential for them for one to be saved. We just can't see how that squares with the Bible passages like Hebrews chapter 9. Again, that's written in your passage. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 25. Nor did he, Jesus, enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest entered the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. It is a mistake to think that Jesus' body would need to be broken again and again, sacrificed again and again, as if his one sacrifice wasn't sufficient or effective. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. It is this once-for-all sacrifice that we celebrate on our Lord's Supper. We don't re-sacrifice, but remember the one true sacrifice. Because believing in Jesus is the only thing that is essential for one to be saved, not the taking of bread and wine. So in our communion liturgy, we say, we give thanks and praise for your Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ, who by his death on the cross and rising to new life offered the one true sacrifice for sin and obtained an eternal deliverance for his people. And we pray, grant us therefore, gracious Lord, by faith to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. There is new meaning given to the bread and cup of the Passover. Jesus wanted his disciples to remember his death for them. When we consider what's going on around Jesus, it highlights just how necessary his sacrifice is. Because all 
all around him in the rest of these verses is betrayal and dispute and denial. I mean, take Judas, for example. Well, despite the hidden plans to trap Jesus, it was not a surprise to Jesus at all. He knew that Jesus would betray him, even, even when the other disciples didn't. In fact, Jesus wasn't submitting himself to human plans. Instead, verse 22, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. That is his Father's decree, not human decrees. It was necessary for Jesus to die as planned because people around him have rejected him, even one who's been so close. How about the other disciples? Well, in verse 24, they've been having a dispute about who amongst them is the greatest. Let I me mean, think about that for a while. They have just eaten bread that reminds them of Jesus' death for them. And yet that's what they're talking about? You can't get a more stark contrast, and Jesus points it out. He's the one who comes to serve the disciples instead, their desire is to be served and to push others around, to lord it over others. Ironically, that's exactly how the Pharaoh treated their forefathers. They will indeed have authority of Jesus uh, in his kingdom in verse 30, but their rule needed to be modelled on him. It turns out that it wasn't just Judas and the Jewish leaders who were far from God, the other disciples too weren't following Jesus very well. The last one is Simon. Simon Peter, who will deny ever knowing Jesus when the attention of murderers turn on him. Yet he will eventually turn back to Jesus after his failure and end up strengthening the other disciples. And you've got to wonder, how come... How come Simon Peter turns out differently to Judas? Did you ever ask that question? I think in verse 32, it is because Jesus intervened. For he prayed for Simon Peter that his faith would not fail. Surrounded by people who would dispute and betray, Jesus intervenes. He doesn't just intervene with prayer. He intervenes with his life. Otherwise, there would be not a single person who would be able to be saved. Let's pray. Father, we give you great praise today for your son, Jesus, for his body broken for us, for his blood that was poured out for us. And Father, we give you praise that we who are sinners, Father, we are able to be free, that you would pass over us because you see your Son sacrificed for us. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.